You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. One of the most neglected books of the Old Testament is Second Chronicles, which is a book about the history of the Israelite kingdom of Judah. But every four years, when American elections come around, Christians seem to rediscover just one verse from this book, Second Chronicles 7.14, which says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You've probably heard this verse or seen it on somebody's yard sign or somebody's bumper sticker. And while I agree with the sentiment that we usually quote this verse to maintain that Christians should pray for this nation and we should confess our nation's sins, I think it's a mistake for us to do that because of this verse. See, in context, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a promise related to God's unique relationship with Israel. It's a promise related to the temple and the Old Testament law and the promised land. That's the land that's in view in that verse. This isn't a promise made for just any nation. It's just for Israel. But there are other biblical passages which present similar ideas for Gentile countries like the United States. For instance, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 in which God says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation that I will destroy it, and if that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That's a promise. That God will delay or spare judgment he would otherwise bring upon a nation if that nation repents from its sin. And so it is right for God's people to pray about the sins of our nation. And today, just two days before the election, this is what I want to urge each of us to do. I know that right now some of us are quite angry about what we see happening around us. I know some of us are quite anxious. But in this season, it's imperative that we pray, that we pray for our nation, that we pray for Christians and for Christian witness in this nation, that we cast ourselves upon God's mercy and that we confess our sins. And that's what we're going to see Daniel do in today's passage. Today we're going to see Daniel is an Israelite who literally prays the prayer of 2 Chronicles 7.14. He turns to God, he confesses his people's sin, he's seeking forgiveness, and he's seeking the promised land to be healed. To be healed from the greatest calamity in the entire Old Testament. The destruction of Jerusalem, which had happened decades before our passage begins. For decades, Jerusalem sat abandoned. The temple sat in ruins. The promised land sat in desolation. And the Jewish people sat scattered throughout the ancient world. But in today's passage, Daniel says to the Lord, Have mercy on us, forgive us, and bring us home. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at the first part of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's prayer confessing the sins of his people. And in this prayer today, we're going to see six principles. And my hope is that these principles will teach us how to pray for our nation and for the American church in this difficult season. So let's jump right in. Daniel chapter 9. We'll look at the first of these principles now, which is that we must pray in light of God's Word. 
Begin in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, uh, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. We'll stop there. Now the visions we've looked at the last two weeks in chapters 7 and 8 of this book took place during the time in which Babylon was the most powerful nation on earth. But as we pick up today in chapter 9, things have changed. Babylon has fallen to Persia, and Darius the Mede has been put in charge of what had been Babylon. Now, this first verse tells us that the, that the chapter we're about to look at takes place at the same time as an incident we looked at a few weeks ago, back in chapter 6, when old Daniel was thrown to the lion's den because he was regularly praying. And around this same time, we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, that in the first year of Darius's reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel's doing some Bible study. Now, probably Daniel heard this prophecy while he was worshiping with other Jews. During the exile, Israel no longer had a temple. And so the Jews had to worship God in some other way, and they started synagogues where they would meet together around God's word. And probably in this context, Daniel hears the words of Jeremiah's prophecy. And what had Jeremiah said? Jeremiah 25, 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you, Israel, have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Of course, Daniel knew that that had happened. As a young boy living in Jerusalem, he would have known about the terrible sin in his city. As a teenager, he had experienced the first war between Babylon and Judah. In fact, he had been taken captive at the end of that in 605 B.C. Nineteen years later, while he was serving in Babylon, Daniel would have heard that his boss, Nebuchadnezzar, had gone to Jerusalem and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple of the Lord. Daniel knew this whole prophecy had been fulfilled. But Jeremiah 25 continues, verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. Now here Daniel's ears would have perked up because quite recently, in the last year or so, this prophecy had been fulfilled. Babylon had fallen. And Jeremiah had said in Jeremiah 29.10, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah said Israel would be in Babylon 70 years. And if Babylon is fallen, Daniel thinks, this is it. The exile is about to end. And Daniel knew that he had been in Babylon 66 years at this point. He, he must be thinking, surely it's about time to return home. And with this background then, in the next verse we read that Daniel begins to pray. Now what we see here is that the Word of God shapes Daniel's prayer. And this is a really important idea. The Christian life, I think, is basically lived out primarily through three practices. Having our minds regularly renewed by God's Word having our wills submitted to God's will through regular prayer, and living a life of faithful obedience to the Lord. That's how we're to live. But these three things are not independent from one another. 
What we read in God's Word should not only be the basis of our life of faithful obedience, what we read in the Bible should also shape how we pray. And I think this can happen in a few ways. First, the Bible records a number of prayers that were prayed by believers in the past. And these prayers teach us how to pray. They teach us what our priorities in prayer should be. So let me give you an example. In Matthew 6, we know the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, there are six petitions. And half of them relate to the advance of God's kingdom and glory. Only one of the six is about us getting material sustenance. But do our prayers sound like that model? If we're honest, most of us would say no. We usually pray for ourselves and our families, for God's protection and material provision. And there's nothing wrong with that. Cast your cares upon the Lord because He cares for you. Right? We should pray for our daily bread and to be delivered from evil. But the Bible tells us that even more than that, we should pray for the advance of God's kingdom. Or consider the prayers of Paul. We regularly pray for our family members and our church members' physical health. But how often do we pray this from Ephesians 3? That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How would our lives be changed if we prayed like that for one another? That's a biblical model of prayer. And so we should... We should pray in line with the biblical examples of prayer that we receive. And we're about to see one such example in Daniel 9. But we should also pray that God would fulfill His promises and His good word to us. They say, well, why is that necessary? God's always faithful to His word. He will perform it whether I pray it or not. But in our passage, that's what we see Daniel doing, right? He hears the 70 years are about to be up. He doesn't go through a party. He goes and gets on his knees and starts praying. And why is he praying for what God has declared he will do? Because God has ordained prayer as a means by which he executes his will on the earth. God doesn't need to use prayer to do that, but he chooses to use prayer to do that. So we are to pray for God to make good his word and his promises. And for us to do that requires that we spend time in God's word to see what God has promised that he will do. So pray in light of God's word. But as Daniel begins to pray, his prayer is not what we might expect. We might think that at this point he would have this enthusiastic, triumphalistic prayer. The exile's ending. Praise the Lord, I'm going home. But that's not what he prays at all. Because the book of Jeremiah doesn't just say that Israel will languish for 70 years and then return home. The book of Jeremiah, I don't know if you've ever read it, it charges Israel with much sin. Sin that Israel never addressed before God. And hearing this prophecy causes Daniel not to rejoice, but to lament. Because he knows he needs to deal with the sin of his people before God. And that's the direction that this passage now goes. And we see that in our second point. Pray a prayer of confession to God with humility. Look at verse 3. Daniel says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel's going to confess sin. He's going to cast himself and his people upon God's mercy. And in doing so, he's undertaking an exercise in humility. That's what confessing sin is. Because it honestly acknowledges our failure. 
And it reminds us of our utter dependence on God's grace. Nothing that we can do can unring the bell of our sin. We cannot expunge our own evil deeds, but we can bring them to the Lord. And we can ask Him to cleanse us on the basis of Christ's atoning death. Confession of sin is a declaration of our dependence on the Lord, and so it is an expression of humility. Daniel further shows humility here by doing three more things. First, he fasts. He abstains from food. Now, when we hear about fasting these days, we usually hear about it as a dieting strategy. But Daniel's not on a weight loss program. That's not what this is. This is an act of spiritual dedication. In fact, fasting always appears in the Bible in times of a desperate need for God to intervene with mercy in a sorrowful or challenging situation. Usually in the Old Testament, people fast because they're lamenting their own sin. And that's what we see here. Daniel is sorry for Israel's sins, and so he abstains from food to reflect his people's desperate need for God's grace. Moreover, Daniel puts on sackcloth, which are the clothes of mourning and sorrow, and he puts ashes on his head. This is also a sign of humility. This is a confession that we are but dust. And so here we see a demonstration of true humility. None of this is a show. None of this is for public consumption. This is a man who is humbling himself before God because he's got to talk about sin. And friends, likewise, we need humility in our prayer lives. Now, I'm not saying we've got to put on sackcloth and ashes outwardly, but in our hearts, if we're really aware of the evil of our sin, a sense of humility should pervade our interactions with God. And that comes from acknowledging our wrongdoing, admitting that we've fallen. It comes from remembering the terrible cost that Jesus paid to buy our pardon. And it seeks mercy from our gracious God. When we walk in humility, in this acknowledgement of our weakness and our dependence on God, then we are actually strong. Because then we most look to God in faith. Then we most give God the glory when He acts. And so friends, the practice of regularly confessing sin will keep us humble. And that is something to be desired. Because we've seen throughout this book that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So let us confess our sins to the Lord. Another way to maintain humility in prayer is to do what Daniel does next, which is our third principle. Pray remembering who God is. Look at verse 4. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Daniel says that he prayed to the Lord in the first Use of the term Lord here is in Hebrew, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. I want you to know that Daniel isn't crying out to some generic notion of God. He is calling out to the God who specifically revealed himself to Israel. You know, today there's a lot of talk about the universe. Or God as some sort of ecumenical great spirit who stands behind all the faiths. That's that's nonsense, friends. If we want our prayer to be heard, we need to pray to the one and only God who exists. The triune God, who is one but eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this God isn't just out there somewhere, detached from creation. Daniel calls Yahweh, my God. He asserts a personal connection, a personal loyalty and relationship to the Lord. And Daniel further describes this loyalty in verse 4 as he calls God, Lord. Now here we don't have, in Hebrew, the covenant name of God. Here we just have a Hebrew word that means master. 
Friends, the living God reigns over this universe in a personal and direct way. And why wouldn't he? He created all things. He has the right of ownership over all things. And so every person owes God our absolute allegiance and obedience. And that is the loyalty that Daniel professes. He is God's servant and God is his master. And friends, we need to know that God is not simply a Lord in title only. He is mighty. You know, there's this notion today that God is trivial. That if he exists, he is some old grandfatherly type who exists only to bless our nation, to help us with tests we haven't studied for, and to get us out of jams. The atheist Voltaire once blasphemed, God forgives because that's his business. Even within the church, there's this idea that Jesus is our buddy, or as the old shirt said, Jesus is my homeboy. Or as some of the music we hear on Christian radio seems to suggest, Jesus is our boyfriend. But friends, in contrast to all of that, the Bible tells us Jesus is Lord. He is exalted. He is great and awesome. And this isn't like the awesome when kids say, awesome. No, this means that he fills with awe, with overpowering glory. In his presence, mortals tremble and collapse. Think of Isaiah, who saw but the... the the, the bottom part of God's robe and cried, I'm undone. Or John who fell over like a dead man when he was in the presence of the risen Christ. Think of the wicked sons of Aaron who offered false incense and in a moment were consumed by fire. Friends, God is immensely glorious and immensely powerful and yes, immensely terrifying. There is a reason the Bible so often speaks of fearing God. This attempt to make God familiar and unthreatening is unbiblical. Friends, we must remember that God is mighty and awe-inspiring. And it will do us good to remember that because that will keep us humble in our prayers. We are dust and He's almighty. But while God is this powerful, He's also loving. We're told He makes covenants. He commits Himself to people. In the Old Testament, he made a covenant with Israel. And now through the blood of Christ, he has established a new covenant with all who believe. Jeremiah 31, God says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians about the glorious position of the believer. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in him before the foundation of the World, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. Friends, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. This mighty and awesome God cares about you and me. God the Son humbled himself to become a man and to die the most horrific death imaginable to reconcile us to himself. Yes, God is transcendently glorious, but he's also a loving father. And he is faithful to his people and to his covenantal obligations. And he shows his loyal love to those who love him, the text says. In American Christianity today, the love of God is often regarded as a sentimental, emotional love. But in the Bible, loving God is most closely associated with obeying Him. 1 John 5.3 says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Friends, loving God at its essence is regarding Him enough to honor Him, to honor him in how we live. And God honors that when He sees that in our lives. 
So when we approach the Lord in prayer, we do well to remember who He is. His transcendence, His glory, His might that He is not to be trifled with. But also, if we know Him, He loves us. He has adopted us as His children. He is our kind and faithful Father. Spend time thinking about who God is. Recite it in prayer because it will get us in the right frame of mind to approach Him in humility and awe and love. Having done that, now Daniel turns to the matter on his heart, which is the sin of Israel. And that's our fourth point. Pray confessing that we are often faithless and that God is ever faithful. Now look at verse 5. By far, by far this will be our longest point today, beginning verse 5 through verse 11. Daniel says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice. What a comprehensive confession of sin. Now, most of what Daniel says here is about the sin of his people, Israel. And that might surprise us because when we think about spiritual realities like sin, we usually think about them in an individualistic way. But the Bible indicates there are spiritual dimensions to group conduct too. Sometimes God holds families accountable for sin in their midst, like Joshua 7. Sometimes God holds churches accountable for sin in their midst, like in 1 Corinthians 5. And God holds nations accountable too. And I'm not just talking about the bad ones like Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, the ones we can all say, oh yes, yes, clearly God judged them. God evaluates every nation. One out of every six chapters in the Old Testament prophetic books involves God pronouncing judgment on nations for their sin. Mighty nations like Babylon and little nations like the city-state of Sidon. God judges national conduct and policy. And that's what Daniel confesses here. National sin, the sin of Israel. And his confession is thorough. This is one of the most amazing statements about sin in the whole Bible. He describes Israel's sin using seven different terms. And these expressions together teach us about the awfulness of sin. First he says, we have sinned. And the Hebrew word means to miss the mark. God required Israel to obey his law, but in every conceivable way, Israel fell short of God's standard. Second, Daniel says, we have done wrong. The word here means to twist. God told Israel how it was to live, but they perverted, they twisted it. Third, Daniel says, we have acted wickedly. The verb here means to incur guilt. Israel earned God's condemnation. Fourth, Daniel says, we have rebelled. Remember, Daniel had acknowledged God is Lord. Humanity owes God allegiance. Israel, his covenant people in particular, owed him allegiance. But instead of loving God by keeping his law, Israel rebelled against God's rightful rule. Fifth, Daniel says plainly, we have turned aside from your commandments and rules. The verb here means to depart from the road one has been traveling on. 
Instead of following the safe path, the path of obedience to God's word, Israel has departed on an alien road in a different direction to danger. Sixth, in verse 7, Daniel says, We have committed treachery. This verb means to break one's legal or covenantal obligations. Often it's used of adultery in the Bible. Israel has broken faith with their covenant partner, the Lord. And seventh, in verse 11, Daniel says, We have transgressed. The verb means to cross, and in this construction, it usually speaks of treason. It's like crossing from our team to the other team. What a description, huh? These seven things. This is how terrible our sin is. We have fallen short of God's standard. We have perverted what is right. We have earned His wrath. We have rebelled against our rightful Lord. We have drifted off the good road. We have betrayed our loving Father, and we have treasonously warred against the God who bought us. What a tragic picture. And Daniel says, we did all of it. And how did they do all of it? Look at verse 11. He says, because Israel refused to obey God's voice. God spoke to Israel. He gave them 10 commandments. He gave them 603 more laws. And Israel broke them all. Not just once. But there was a pattern over centuries in which Israel increasingly disobeyed the Lord and pursued evil. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles show us this in detail. How Israel discarded God's law. How they decided to live like the unbelieving nations around them. They preferred the world to the holiness God called them to. They lived in idolatry and immorality. Ultimately, they became worse than the Canaanites, who God chased out before them and destroyed. They sacrificed their own children to demons. They used occult practices. They gave themselves over to every kind of evil. You know what the Lord did? He sent the prophets that said, Come back, come back, why will you die? Israel rejected everything God had to say in the law and the prophets. And who is guilty for this? Well, Daniel says our kings did it. And he says the princes did it. That means elites. So did the fathers, the leaders of the various tribes and families. This is a comprehensive list. Everyone in authority in Israel failed at every level. But Daniel doesn't just blame the leaders. He blames all the people of the land in verse 6. No matter what tribe they were from, whether they lived in Jerusalem or the countryside, no matter where they came from or to where they were exiled, everyone in Israel is on the hook for this sin, Daniel says, including him. Verse 20, which we'll look at next week. Daniel says, in this confession, Daniel also confessed his own sin. Now the text doesn't exactly tell us in what way Daniel was associated with this sin. But Daniel saw his own unfaithfulness in this somewhere. And because of all of this sin, Daniel says, open shame belongs to us. You know, shame is something people try to avoid these days. But shame is not always bad. Shame is the right response to sin. And because of Israel's sin, there was plenty of shame to go around. They had lost their land. They had lost their independence. And in verse 16, Daniel says, Israel's become a byword among the nations. They acquired an infamous reputation. People whispered about them. These are the people who were so evil, their own God overthrew them. It's not the kind of reputation you want to have. But God warned them in Deuteronomy 28, 37, he was going to give them this reputation if he ever sent them into exile. This is another cycle of judgment. And so Israel's guilty. Israel's ashamed. But now Daniel makes a profound statement, and he says, all of this was our fault. God, you were blameless in all of this. And friends, that's humility. How often when we are caught up in sin do we want to blame other people? Or at least split the blame, right? I failed, but you know you failed too. No, Daniel doesn't say that. 
Instead, he totally acquits the Lord in this matter. Verse 7, he says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. God didn't make this mess. God dealt bountifully and fairly with Israel. God gave them an exalted position as the head of the nations. God blessed them with a good land and a good law. He warned them about the terms of the covenant. And Israel accepted it over God's warning. And even when Israel didn't live up to their end, God called to them again and again and again. And it was Israel's hardness of heart alone that led to the disaster that occurred. God maintained his end of the covenant. He always does and he always will because he is endlessly faithful. And so Daniel makes this confession. What should we take from this? God holds individuals and groups and nations to account for their sin. And friends, the right response to our sin is we need to confess it and forsake it. The confession of sin is a vital part of the Christian's life. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses, which were posted 503 years ago yesterday, declares that the whole life of believers is to be a life of repentance. And when we confess our sin to the Lord, or when sometimes we need to confess our sin to others because we've wronged them, our confession should be as humble and explicit as Daniel's is here. He doesn't pull any punches. He calls sin, sin. He acknowledges its awful character, how it corrodes our relationship with God, how it destroys our own lives. He doesn't shift the blame, he owns his part, and he throws himself on God's grace and mercy. That's a real confession. And he does this because verse 9 tells us that to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. The confession of sin leads to the mercy of God. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we need, right? When we sinned, we need God's mercy because Christ paid for that on the cross. We need God's mercy personally and we need God's mercy collectively and nationally. And now that's what I want to focus on here for a minute, the collective nature of this confession. We saw earlier that our prayer lives should be shaped by God's Word. And this collective confession is a part of God's word. And so praying in this vein is sometimes appropriate. But when should we pray a prayer of collective confession? What collective sins should we own? This has become a controversial issue in our day because we live in an age in which there is a constant craving for societal outrage. There always seems to be a celebrated cause. And whoever lines up with it is applauded as righteous by the world around us. And whoever doesn't line up with it is expected to immediately apologize as loudly and publicly as possible and then slink off into obscurity. And this endless cycle of outrage and apology seeking has led to a lot of confusion in this area about the corporate confession of sin. I think there are three extremes to be avoided. The first extreme approach denies that corporate confession is ever appropriate. This is an overreaction to the culture of outrage in our day because we clearly see Daniel righteously praying a prayer of corporate confession, a prayer which God responds to favorably, we will see next week. Moreover, we've seen that God holds nations accountable for their sins. And so there's nothing wrong with the idea that there should be collective repentance where it's biblically justified. This idea that collective sin doesn't exist is non-biblical. But there's a second approach that we need to reject. And this approach has been called by one author, false apology syndrome. This is when someone apologizes for sins that they have absolutely nothing to do with. Let me give you two examples. 
After the 2016 Orlando massacre, which was perpetrated by an Islamic terrorist against a homosexual nightclub, a number of Christian writers wrote apologies about this incident to the homosexual community. But these writers had nothing to do with the crime. Why were they apologizing? Well, for the same reason as in 2001, Pope John Paul II apologized to the Islamic world for the Crusades, which happened 800 years earlier. John Paul didn't order the Crusades. Why was he apologizing? Because like the Christian writers after Orlando, his apology was really about making a public statement that looked virtuous by falsely looking humble, by apologizing for things for which these folks were not personally guilty. In truth, these apologies were no apologies at all. See, the true confession of corporate sin involves taking ownership of one's own wrongdoing, one's own share in corporate sin. In verse 20, again, Daniel looks at the sin of Israel and he says, I'm confessing my sin here too. He's involved in this in some way. True confession necessarily requires a real connection to the underlying offense. But more than that, a true confession of sin involves paying a personal cost. When you publicly confess your sin, you take a reputational hit, right? People don't see you the same way they used to. It's humbling. It's unpleasant. True confession is about exposing your own wrongdoing and throwing yourself on the mercy of God and the mercy of other people, like Daniel does here. But a false confession is about pride. Look at me. I'm more virtuous than the people who actually did this evil thing, and I'm going to make a loud public statement so that you all know that I'm virtuous so I can enjoy the adulation of people applauding my sensitivity. This is another false approach to corporate confession, which we must reject. A third false approach to corporate confession is the confession that C.S. Lewis warned about in his essay, The Dangers of National Repentance. Lewis said, calling the nation to repentance is something the church must do with reluctance because, quote, the fatal charm of national repentance is the encouragement it gives us to turn from the bitter task of repenting our own sins to the congenial one of bewailing and denouncing the conduct of others. You know, some people love to look self-righteous by always denouncing other people. It's a neat trick because it keeps the spotlight off them. And in our own day, this is especially problematic. Right now, I think the political climate is such that there are people in basically one of two camps. And depending on whichever camp you're in, you know all about the terrible sins of the other side. You can recite them alphabetically or chronologically. But while you castigate others, are you willing to examine the sins of your own position? Let me give you an example. I was talking to a believer recently, and we were talking about the state of things in this country. And he made some very good, strong, valid points about the terribly horrendous immorality of abortion and the scandalizing normalization of, of sexual deviance. But then the topic of racial division in this country came up. And he didn't want to hear about it. He didn't want to talk about it. He wanted to move on. And then a few weeks later, we talked again, and he used a racial slur in his conversation with me. And when I called it out, he just said, I shouldn't have said that, and he wanted to move on as quickly as possible. Friends, it's easy to denounce the sins of others in detail. And you know, many of our denunciations may be true. But you know what? God's more familiar with the sins of others than we are. He doesn't need our help in tallying up other people's sin. What God is primarily interested in is us confessing and forsaking our own sin. The confession of sin is not a game. It's not an exercise in self-righteousness. What did the Pharisee pray? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. 
To this we could add whatever group of other people's sins really upset us. God, I thank you I'm not into homosexuality or abortion or I'm not a communist or I'm not a fascist or I'm not a racist or I'm not a greedy capitalist or what, whatever sins people want to name. People like to denounce whoever, but it won't justify us before God. But it was the publican who left justified when he merely prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we confess our sins and the sins of our nation, we need to focus on the national sins which we are individually guilty of. That way we're really dealing with our own guilt, not just denouncing others self-righteously. I think a good example of this comes from Isaiah 6, where the prophet confesses, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean lips. His sin matches the nation's sin. His confession is true. And so this leads to another question. What groups should we associate ourselves with in corporate confession? Well, I would say if you're part of a company or a social group which you know is guilty of perpetrating sin, you need to confess those corporate sins to the Lord. But what this passage focuses on is Daniel confessing the sin of Israel. Israel is Daniel's nation, and Israel also constitutes the Old Testament people of God. And from that, I think we should follow Daniel's example in two ways. First, we should confess the sin of our nation. And second, we should confess the sin of the people of God. In this case, the church. And I would say particularly the church in America. Now let's talk about confessing the sins of our nation. What sins should we confess? Again, sins that our nation is guilty of, which we personally are also guilty of. That protects us from self-righteousness. These sins may belong to our generation, or they may go back a bit. When Daniel confessed the sins of the kings of Israel here, every person who had ever sat on David's throne was dead. Daniel prayed this prayer in 538 B.C. The sins that he's cataloging here start as far back as about 930 B.C., about 400 years. So the issue isn't how old a sin is. The issue is, is the sin real, and have I personally participated in it? In this case, Daniel believes he has had a share in his country's historical sin. And so he confesses it. But what are the sorts of sins that God charges nations with? I'll read you this list, and I have references for all of it if you're interested. But if you go through all the passages in the prophetic literature in which God judges Gentile nations, what you will find is the number one sin that God judges nations for is pride. We find this in 12 different passages. Do we feel arrogant about our nation? I know I often do. God doesn't smile on that. It's sin. In six passages, we find God judging nations that rejoice in the downfall of their enemies. Is that something we like? When our enemies come to ruin? I know I've enjoyed that in the past, but God didn't enjoy it. Rejoicing in that is sin. In six passages, we find God denouncing countries which, in, which pursue vengeful and violent foreign policies. Countries which were not engaged in defensive war, but aggressive war. God also judges nations that take what don't belong to them, that forcibly enslave other people, that do violence to pregnant women and the unborn, that engage in occult practices, that engage in idolatry, and that propagate aspects of their culture which are wicked. That's a pretty comprehensive list of what's actually said in the prophetic books. And I would wager that a lot of these items sound familiar to us, don't they? Then there are the sins of Romans 1. Deeds which are so obviously against uh, the, the, the pale that even nature testifies against them. Idolatry, lust, homosexuality, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit. 
maliciousness, gossip, slander, hating God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, inventing evil, being disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And beyond all that, he says, not just doing these sins, but giving approval to those who practice them. Does this sound familiar to us? Our society has malice. Maybe our hearts do too. Our society practices murder. Maybe we wish for the deaths of our enemies. I saw a recent poll said 18% of people in both the Republican and Democratic Party said violence against the other party was justified. There is a lot of murder in people's hearts. Our society rejoices in sexual immorality, coveting and envy. Do we indulge in these things? Do we rejoice in them? Do we approve of the lying and the slander of our politicians? Do we participate in or rejoice in the evils of our society? If we do, we need to confess that sin. In the same way, it's right that American Christians confess the sins of the American church. 1 Peter 4 says it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And I would ask you, what is the legacy of evangelicalism in America at this moment? Yes, there are some wonderful things that have been done. But have we not seen the church basically turned into a form of entertainment? Have we not made idols out of celebrity pastors and, and politicians? Have we not resorted to gimmickry instead of preaching the gospel because we really don't believe that God will do His work His way and we think the world's methods will achieve better results? Do we not bend to expediency and pragmatism because we don't listen to the voice of God? Have we not basically opened the door to false gospels of health and wealth because we value what is passing away more than what is eternal. Because we want the financial benefit of associating with hucksters. Do we not care more about how many people are in the pews and how much money is in the collection, rather than how deep our members walk is with Christ? We have been unwilling to reach the lost in evangelism, preferring instead to denounce their sins from a perch while denying them the hope that's in Christ. We've been unwilling to practice corporate discipline because we don't genuinely care for people's welfare and we don't want to rock the boat. We put people in charge of churches because of their resumes rather than their righteousness. Friends, we've got to confess these sins, especially insofar as they describe perhaps our own attitudes. Because God is great and awesome and He is not playing around. And these sins are not merely an offense against our holy God, although they are an offense against Him. But sin corrupts. A little leaven leavens the lump. And if these sins are left unchecked, they will reap destruction. That's what happened to Israel. They drifted into sin. They closed their ears to God's word, and they drifted into disaster. And that's what we see now in our fifth point. Pray with urgency, recognizing that God makes good on his warnings of judgment. Look at verse 11. Daniel says, And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. We often talk about the faithfulness of God, and we should. Isaiah 40 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. But that's not just true about the parts we like. God is faithful to all of his word, including the warnings. And as Daniel looked at the last 70 years of Israel's history, what could he say but God is faithful? 
God warned in Leviticus 20 and 26 and Deuteronomy 4 and 28 that if Israel persisted in unrepentant sin long enough, horrors would fall on them. People would eat their own children in a siege. There would be a mass slaughter. Jerusalem would be destroyed and the, the people would be scattered among the nations. And after centuries of iniquity, those promises came to pass to the letter. God made good on those threats. He, uh, Daniel says, God was watching and ready with the calamity until the right time. And then he unleashed it. What should we take from this? Friends, there needs to be an urgency as we consider the reality of individual and collective sin because God's patience has a limit. Now, unlike what Daniel says about Israel here, God has not given a special word of warning to the United States, but he has given us a general warning in the Bible. The wages of sin is death. James 1 says, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin destroys because sin itself is self-destructive and because the Lord chastises sin. And again, the prophetic books of the Old Testament list a number of judgments that God unleashed on Gentile nations in the past. See if these sound familiar. Natural disasters, diseases, economic distress, the reduction of a country's glory and influence, allowing a nation to experience terror, allowing civil unrest to erupt in a country, and turning the nation's leaders to fools. When you hear that list, it doesn't sound so far off, does it? Perhaps judgment has begun. Perhaps it soon will. Friends, there is an urgency to addressing sin in our nation. And there is an urgency to addressing sin in the American church. Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus speaks to a group of seven churches. And he warns five of them, repent or I'm going to chastise you. And some of the chastisements are really serious. Friends, Christ is not messing around. He wants his churches to be serious about the gospel. And so, friends, we need to realize time is short. We need to handle our business with God. And that begins with the confession of sin, but it doesn't end there. I would tell you, if you really want to have an impact on this country, get serious about the Great Commission. Because nothing is going to lead this country towards repentance like the people of God proclaiming the gospel of God to our lost friends and neighbors and co-workers. That's what's going to lead people to repentance. Not campaigning and not voting, not the stuff of this world, but witnessing and fervently praying for the lost and encouraging churches and Christians to return to the primacy of the gospel, to the faithful declaration of God's word, and to prayer and evangelism. But to do all that with integrity, we first must deal with our own sin. We must follow Daniel's example. We confess our sins and then we ask the Lord for mercy. And that's our last point. Pray earnestly seeking God's mercy. Here at the end of the prayer, Daniel now sets forth his petition. This is what he's asking for. Verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought our people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem and your holy hill because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel reminds God of the Exodus, and he does this for two reasons. 
First, because the core of this petition is a request for Israel to return to the promised land, for the exile to end, for a second exodus, as it were. But second, Daniel says to God, it was in the exodus that you made a name for yourself. When the exodus happened, when God humbled mighty Egypt, all the nations around heard about the Lord, that he was God, he wasn't just an idol. That's what Rahab said back in the book of Joshua. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. For the Lord your God, He is God. The Exodus showed all the nations that the Lord is God, but, but now Daniel says the nations have forgotten your reality, God. Now they laugh because your city's in ruins, and your temple's destroyed, and your people have become a byword. And so for this reason, most of all, Daniel says, hear my prayer, not because Israel's righteous, but for the cause of protecting your own name and your own reputation, have mercy. Relent of the judgment we are experiencing. Don't allow Jerusalem and the Temple Mount to languish any longer. As 2 Corinthians 7.14 says, forgive our sin and heal our land. And Daniel urges that God do this because God is righteous. He has brought about the judgment he said he would, and now it has come to pass. And now that the judgment has been fulfilled, Daniel says to God, have mercy on us and let us go home and rebuild the temple. Having said all of that now, Daniel finishes his prayer with this earnest and insistent conclusion. Listen to this verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. That is fervent prayer. Now, today, we are in a different position than Daniel was when he prayed this prayer. Daniel prayed long after judgment had fallen on Israel. And Daniel prayed with the biblical promise that one day, Israel would get to go home to the promised land. Today, we sit in a different position. Judgment may be in the process of falling on us, but we're not desolate like Judah. We haven't fallen like Babylon. And unlike Daniel's situation, there's no promise that if America falls, that one day God will restore it. And so the prayer that we pray for our nation will look different than the particulars of Daniel's prayer here. But we should pray for mercy, and we should pray with the fervor Daniel shows here. Pray for revival. Pray for repentance. Pray for forgiveness before calamity falls. But I also want to urge you to pray for the American church. And here we can make some of the specific appeals that Daniel makes in this passage. When the world looks at the evangelical church today, what does it see? If you look at the surveys on this, the answers are tragic. Money-grubbing, deception, power-hungry people using the name of Jesus to play politics. We have become a byword in our culture. Not because of our testimony for the gospel, but because of our apostasy from it. When the world scorns us, it should be because they hate our testimony for Christ. Not because we have exposed the Lord to disrepute by our sin. But friends, it's not too late. Let us pray insistently to the Lord for mercy to restore our witness. Not for our own sake. Not because we're righteous, but for the preservation of the Lord's reputation and for the sake of the Gospel. So friends, let us pray with urgency before the Lord for grace and mercy as Daniel did. For our country and for the preservation of Christian witness in our society. So to conclude. I know this has been a trying season for many of us. I know many of you are anxious about the future. My counsel to you is pray. Pray in light of God's word. Pray a prayer of confession to God with humility. Pray remembering who God really is. 
Pray confessing that while we are often faithless, God is ever faithful. Pray with urgency, recognizing that God makes good on his warnings of judgment. And pray earnestly, seeking God's mercy. Friends, let us be praying people. Prayer is a wonderful gift. The ability to cast our cares on Christ, to unburden our sin. So as Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, holy, glorious, exalted, and awesome, our loving Heavenly Father, this morning we humbly come before you to pray, confessing our sin and confessing that we reflect the sinful patterns of our nation. In our deeds and in our thoughts, Father, we have failed to do what we ought to do, and we have done what we ought not to have done. Often, Lord, we have assented to the sins perpetrated by others, and in all of this we have missed the mark. We have acted perversely. We have rebelled against you and betrayed you, our Lord and Master and our faithful, loving Father. We have committed idolatry, following men and money and luxury rather than Christ. We have coveted and envied and stolen. We have harbored pride in our hearts, and we have taken your name in vain. We have given ourselves to sinful lust. And in all these things, Father, we reflect the fact that we are sinners by nature, and that we live in a sinful nation that worships everything but you, which is arrogant and irreverent and which rejoices in the sins of the flesh. Father, we live in a violent society, a nation which is guilty of violence against the unborn, other nations, and which has been marked by our whole history down to this day by ethnic violence. Forgive us where we have harbored malice and violence in our hearts. Father, we pray for the church in this nation, Lord, we so often find ourselves adrift from matters of first importance to which you've called us. Help us to keep the gospel first. We're so easily drawn to the idolatrous cult of celebrity. Celebrity pastors and celebrity musicians and celebrity Christians when you simply call us to follow Christ. We're so easily drawn into the sinful patterns of this world and pragmatism and gimmickry and partiality and politics because we have forgotten that you have judged the wisdom of this world. We have failed to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and to admonish wayward believers because of our laziness and our cowardice. Oh God, forgive us and renew us and restore us and have mercy on us and upon your church in this country for your own sake and for the sake of the gospel. Have mercy upon our nation. Our future is in your hands. Lord, strengthen and commit your people to proclaim your word and your gospel to this nation and grant that in this dark time, many people would repentantly come to Christ. Lord, please delay and relent of any judgment which you would bring upon us for our many sins. Lord, we pray for mercy because we seek the welfare of the place where you have allowed us to live as exiles. Father, things seem so bad in our world. Help us to remember that Christ is victorious. Help us to remember that he has broken the power of sin over our lives. Help us to honor and glorify him as we live by faith. Help us to honor you in whatever we do. For if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Lord, we look to you. We hope in you. Redeem us from all our iniquities for your name's sake. In Jesus' name.